Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Mikhail Thorup. Before we get to him, I have a few announcements to make. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there. You can see photos of our guests. You can see links to their social media. You can see stories that I've written. You can see stories that some of the guests have written. You can see links to our social media, and that is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. There's links to our Facebook page, And there's links to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio. You can find us on Spotify. You can get us anywhere pretty much you can get your podcasts. So please, if you like what you hear, subscribe. And if you do listen to us on those platforms, please give us a good rating because that boosts our presence there and helps more people find the show. So if you can do that, I'd appreciate that. If you want to write me, maybe you got some travel questions. Maybe you think you'd be good for the show. Maybe you know somebody else would be good for the show. You can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, my guest today is Mikhail Thorup. He is the founder of EscapeArtist.com, which was made to help people who want to live abroad, mostly North Americans. He's Canadian, but he's lived abroad for over 20 years. And EscapeArtist.com was created to help other people who were thinking about living abroad. And nowadays, a lot of people I know are, have looked into living overseas, maybe temporarily or maybe permanently. And if a global pandemic has taught us one thing, it's that uh, a lot of people who didn't know they could work for from home or remotely are learning that they can work remotely. And a lot of people are trying to work remotely. So if you were ever thinking about living abroad as an expat somewhere, escapeartist.com is a good resource. And Mikkel also has a podcast, Join the Club. Who doesn't these days? <laughs> it's called The Expat Money Show. He's also the author of a book called Expat Secrets, which you can get on Amazon. And I'll be honest, I didn't know about uh, Mikkel. I was reached out to him by his publicist, And I know I've talked to a lot of expats and people who live, whether uh, digital nomads who move around constantly or expats who've made homes in other countries to get their take on uh, their experiences and their travel. And Mikkel has traveled a lot, so we talk about that a bit. He's currently living in Panama, so that's where uh, he was when we did this interview. So you can go to TravelTalesPodcast.com and next to Mikkel's story and the podcast, you'll see links to his Twitter and his website and all that stuff, but you can also go to EscapeArtist.com. So here's my chat with Mikkel Thorup. Mikkel Thorup. Is that Dutch, Finnish? Close. You're getting close. Danish. My family's originally from Denmark. Okay. But you are Canadian, correct? Born and raised. Which part? Close to Toronto, about two hours away from Toronto. Two hours. I got friends in Guelph. Is that nearby? Yeah. Guelph is pretty close. Pretty close. Okay. You you travel that all through Canada? Oh, yeah. Many times. Many times. But unbelievably, I've been to just about every major city in North America. Mm -hmm. Um, and, well, you know, I've worked uh, cruises a okay. bunch. So last summer, I did a lot of the Maritimes. So I did PEI and uh, I did the Boston to Montreal route. Cool. 
the Quebec City, and then we would do PEI, Nova Scotia, and all that, and then down to Maine, and then Boston. But uh, the only major city in North America I haven't been to, Toronto. Really? I've been to Vancouver many dozens of times. I've yeah. been Calgary. I've been to Banff. Yeah. Um, my God. I lived in Banff. I lived in Banff when I was 19 or 20 or something like that. God, Banff is gorgeous. Stunning, eh? Stunning. So when you were working on the cruise, you're a comedian by trade, right? Yeah. So you were doing stand-up on, yep. on the cruise? Or? Yep. Cool. That's neat. For, I've been doing cruises for about, uh, about four years, four or yeah. five years now. But uh, as you can imagine, it all ended. <laughs> it's all over right now. Yeah. So, uh, but I've been doing the travel show for, uh, I don't know, about nine years or so. So, Holy moly. You must have been one of the first podcasters out there. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It was in uh, Morse code when we started. <laughs> so talk about your podcast and say, uh, tell people what it is and uh, what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. So I host a podcast called The Expat Money Show. We started about four years ago. Um, we deal a lot with not just the finances, but the entrepreneurial side as well, investing, um, but all for those people who are living overseas permanently. So it's not just the, um, the digital nomads or anything like that. It's, although I have a lot of people who do listen who are digital nomads, we try to stick to more of the expat scene. Right. So I, I have um, talked to a lot of digital nomads as well. So tell people the difference. Really, expat is you're going there to live. Digital nomads are constantly moving, right? Yeah, I would say that's a pretty easy definition. I mean, digital nomads, they've s slowed down a lot in recent years. I think a lot of them, three months, six months, stuff like that. But for me, it's not three months, six months. It's like three years, six years plus. I <laughs> right. mean, you know, so it's a multiple. Um, I also think that I incorporate myself into the community quite a bit, which I think that is very difficult when you're there for a short amount of time. I often try to study the language. So for example, I live in Panama full time right now. I actively study Spanish every day and, you know, within 18 months went from pretty crummy Spanish to quite fluent. And I mean, there's no secret to that. You just literally have to put the time and energy and effort into it. Um, so I, I guess those are some of the, the superficial differences between an expat and a nomad. But you know, all in all, we're friends, I would say. <laughs> Do you find language difficulties maybe the number one fear most people have about going to a foreign language and, and living for a while? No, I don't think that language is the number one thing. I think that just leaving in general is difficult for people. I think that a lot of times it's the money, you know, they're worried about leaving their job and they're thinking, okay, if I move to another country and I have to start over, you know, well, what if I'm going to starve? What if I'm, my family's going to be on the street or nobody's going to want to hire me or anything like that? And it's bizarre because, I mean, often people who are educated in North America or have experience in North America are really sought after when they go overseas. I mean, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of uh, gumption to be able to do something like that. So it's actually a benefit when you go overseas. And you know, salaries often reflect something like that. They want a different perspective. Um, if you have a college education, I mean, personally, I don't think college is the greatest place to go for education. I think that there's much better ways to do it. But a lot of jobs when you work overseas, they do look at those things uh, quite prominently. So when did this expat life of yours start? And how many countries have you lived in? So um, for my story, I have to go kind of back in time. So when I was a child, I was actually diagnosed with a learning disability. And I remember um, I was in grade three 
And the teacher, they pulled me out of class and they brought me to a special room and the principal was there and the resource teacher and my teacher and they sat me down and they said, Mikkel, Mikkel, something doesn't work quite right in your brain. And what we want to do is to send you to a special school, a special school for special boys. And that's what they did. Every day for three years, I got on a little white bus and I took a little white bus across town and I went to this special school. But Mike, it wasn't actually a special school. It was a regular school with a special class. So you can kind of imagine, you know, I got picked on, I got bullied, I got into fights. Like it was brutal. Now, this is no woe is me story, poor Mikkel, poor Mikkel. Like, I gave as good as I got. There's no question about that. But um, pretty much I hated school. So grade seven, I was finally able to return back to my neighborhood school that I had left. And I was so excited, you know. I thought, wow, everyone is going to have missed me so much. They're going to be so happy to see me. And they're just going to be just overjoyed. Like, this is going to be amazing. Everything's going to go back to normal. No more fights. No more coming home from school crying. And once again, I'm sure you can imagine, I got back to school and people, they started whispering and gossiping. Oh, I know him. He went to some retard school. You know, 1980s, totally politically correct, very <laughs> sensitive children. You know how sure, kids are. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And grade seven and eight, um, more fights, more picked on, more bullying, uh, more giving as good as I got once again. And I figured out really young that actually, I don't like school. I don't like it at all. And so I stopped going. So at 12 years old, I stopped going to school. And at 15, I had officially dropped out. And not shortly after that, I started traveling internationally. And it was so amazing because when I went overseas, I saw all these people doing things completely differently than the way that I had done them in Southwestern Ontario. And I really felt like, wow, there's not just one way to do things. There's not just one way to educate yourself. And it's interesting because my father, when I was growing up, had always told me like traveling was the best thing he ever did in his life. Like it was the greatest thing he ever did. So I was like, well, if it was the greatest thing you ever did, like why did you only do like one or two trips? Why didn't you spend more time at it? Anyways, um, I started traveling. I saw what he was talking about and that it really was the greatest thing. And so I started traveling and I just never stopped. So fast forward to today, I mean, I've been at this for 21 years straight now. Um, I've gone to 104, 105 countries, something like that. I've lived in eight different countries and I've circumnavigated the planet more than 400 times. So basically, I started traveling and 21 years later, and I never stopped. I never took a break. I never, I just keep going and going and going. And I still love it today. <laughs> and it's still like, for me, a much better way to educate yourself than going through traditional education. Well, I'm sure the next question that you probably get asked the most, it's, um, and it's right in the title of your show, is money. And I think the digital nomads more or less make their money online in some kind of business way. Now, as an expat, uh, I think what I've heard a little bit of your show, a couple of your shows, and it's more about you like to set up a business where you're at. Is that true? Yeah, I think that a lot of the stuff that I do is more expat entrepreneurship. So once again, it's just taking that digital nomad a step further where we do things like actually get a residency in the country. We become tax residents of that country. We're following all the laws and the rules. I mean, I work a lot in the offshore space. So although I don't agree with taxation, I do follow the laws of the land. I might not like it, but I still follow them. Um, 
you know, we deal a lot with the investments as well with foreign investments, building the business overseas, you know, foreign stocks, foreign real estate, foreign bank accounts, foreign company formation, all these types of things. But I mean, at the end of the day, I would say my show is really about freedom and liberty. And the vehicle for doing that is living overseas. Does that make sense? Yeah, but are you more or less, have most of your countries been uh, uh, more Central America based or were you in Europe? You've done Asia as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, at 105 countries, you kind of have to go out of Latin America. Well, so, yeah, I know. But I mean, I mean, do you have a preference in one or another? And if people, is one better for starting a business than, say, another? I mean, I'm not going to give individual tax advice on the interview. But I mean, you look at any of the countries that have favorable tax laws. So, for example, I lived in the Middle East for eight years. I lived in Abu Dhabi. And it was a zero tax country. I mean, that suited me quite well. Yeah, but there's um, more there's more to starting a business than taxes. I mean, there's there's, you know, whether you're how much business you're allowed to do, there's, you know, corruption, there's government interference, there's all this other there's crime, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of things. Well, I think that the majority of the businesses at least in my life and the people that I work with are all online businesses. Okay. So well, we're, we're not worried about like, uh, these aren't people opening a bar or a hairdresser unquote, or something like that. building inspector coming by and, you know. Exactly, exactly. Okay. I mean, we work from home uh, and o- like right, okay. you know, an online business or something like that. Okay. Well, yeah. And, but as, I don't know how Canadian, I think American government is the only one that taxes you on income outside. Or How does that work again? It's like Americans yeah, so are taxed no matter where they live. That, yeah, right? so yeah. you are right. There's two countries in the world that deal with uh, taxation based on citizenship. Right. One is the United States and the other is Eritrea in Africa, which is known for blatant human rights violations. So take from that what you will. Um, as a Canadian, it makes things easier. That's certain. I'm, I'm a non-resident of Canada. I live in Panama as a permanent resident. And uh, I legally pay no taxes here. Now, Americans, what they have that does help is called the foreign earned income exclusion. And that is going to shelter roughly about $108,000 a year as a tax deductible. So basically on that first amount of money, you're not going to pay any taxes. So that's a good amount. Now, if you live in Costa Rica or Belize or Thailand or Malaysia, you know, one of these countries, and you're making $100,000 or $108,000, I mean, you're having a really good life, like a really high quality of life for sure. Yeah. I mean, have you gotten um, citizenship in any of these other countries? And how many, like, how many other passports do you have? So usually what I do is work on residencies. I work on a permanent residency. So I was on my way to getting citizenship when I lived in Australia. I was there for three years, but that didn't end up working out. I was in um, Singapore for one year, but they don't allow dual nationality. So I stopped that process and I wasn't interested in continuing. In the Middle East, you can be there for eight years like I was. In, in Abu Dhabi, you can be there for eight years or you can be there for 80 years and you'll never get citizenship. They don't grant it to other people. Currently, I'm working on Panamanian. We have some other ones in the works as well. And as a Canadian passport holder, I haven't felt the need to, uh, to get a lot of the other passports. I mean, as long as you have the permanent residency, you're going to be able to do most of the things that you want to do. Right. If, so when you say... When you started traveling, you said you, you, that your mind was blown. And that's what happened to me and a lot of people who finally leave the country for the first time. 
It was like, oh, there's a whole new way to live out in the world. Were you ever that like, you know, hostile backpacker dude or were you just... Sure, you know, absolutely. Okay. When I first started, I was in... Um, the first time I went to Europe was about a month. That was hostels. Then Europe again for four or five months and North Africa. And those were all hostels as well, which was a fantastic place to meet people. And then 18 months of hitchhiking through Central America when I was like 21. That was all hostels and pensions and stuff. And then, yeah, even New Zealand. I lived in New Zealand for a year. I think that started out as hostels. And then kind of moved up from there to small budget hotels and then <laughs> more expensive hotels. And I mean, we went all the way up to resorts and five-star hotels. And now we've gone back the other way. And now we, we do enjoy a nice Airbnb, you know, cup, like two-bedroom Airbnb does me and my wife just fine. If my mom and uh, my daughter are with me, my, my mother travels with us and helps take care of my daughter. I mean, we might go for something a bit bigger, but all okay, in all, I'd so say Airbnb is the way to go. You do have a family. Um, that's, I'm sure, the other big question you probably get asked is uh, relationships when you move around all the time. So you're either going to have uh, have to someone who's cool with you being gone a lot, or mm -hmm. they got to be cool with the expat lifestyle as well and moving all over the place. So uh, where is your is your wife Canadian? Nope. So. I'm Canadian with Danish heritage. My wife is from mainland China. We met in Germany. We got married in Africa. Uh, my daughter was born in Abu Dhabi, and now we live in Panama City, Panama. So pretty international family, you could say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, does your daughter, do you homeschool her? Or, yeah. I mean, as not a fan of schools, as you said? Yeah, That's we cool. homeschool, or a form of unschooling, you could say. It's our own kind of hybrid model. Now, my daughter's four and a half, almost five. Um, so we've been homeschooling her for a couple of years and so far so good. I mean, she speaks English and Mandarin both as first languages. And now we teach her Spanish as well, which is a, a work in progress. But I mean, straight off the bat, she'll speak three languages in the home, which is kind of how our house runs anyways, always in three languages. So, sure. so that'll give her an advantage. But yeah, I mean, it works for us. And my wife loves to travel. She's traveled all over the world. Um, my daughter's been to 12 countries, I think, already at four. So, How's your Mandarin these days? It uh, needs a little work, you could say. <laughs> I, I know probably a couple hundred words. Um, my mother and father-in-law don't speak any English, so mm. I have to know a little bit to at least say hello and ask them how they are. And you know, I could probably order my food, but that's about it at this point. Well, you don't get to gloss over 18 months backpack or hitchhiking around Central America. So give us uh, some travel tales from there. Give me your, your, your scariest ride that you ever picked up on the road when you're thumbing. Oof. Okay, I'll, I've got a couple of stories from Central America. <laughs> so first of all, I mean, I flew down to Louisiana. I started in the States. This was in, I want to say, like 2002. And... This was all pre-Katrina, so we went there for Mardi Gras and spent about a month or two in southern United States and hitchhiked all through there and then flew over to Mexico. It was two months in Mexico, then Belize, and went into Guatemala. I was in Guatemala for probably about five months, uh, studied a bit of Spanish then, and then was in El Salvador, Nicaragua, uh, or Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. And I remember when I was in Costa Rica... Um, I actually needed a break from people because I, like, I don't know if you've done a lot of the backpacking circuit, but it's quite interesting when you go solo traveling, 
you're never solo for very long. Like you always like meet someone or someone to travel with. Well, I was always traveling with people and I'd be with people like groups of six or eight of us and we'd be going for two months. Anyways, I needed a bit of a break. So I found this little tiny sleepy village in Costa Rica and I got a little pension there and it was maybe like two or three days by myself. And I was every morning I'd go for a walk on the beach and there was this little inlet uh, that was leading into the ocean. I was like, oh, I wonder what this is like, you know? Let's just go for a hike. There's nobody around, like miles and miles and miles, nobody around. So I follow this inlet, this stream, for about 15 minutes, and I'm kind of splashing in the water, you know? It's really, really sunny, really, really hot. I got my shoes off, my flip-flops in my hands, and I'm splashing in the water. The water's probably up to, I don't know, maybe about my knees, maybe a little less. And I got this thought. It, like, pops into my head out of nowhere. And I was like, I wonder if there's any crocodiles here. And I went, meow, <laughs> that's so stupid, Mikel. Crocodiles are in Australia. There's no crocodiles in Costa Rica. And I swear to God, Mike, I took one step, two step, three step, and I look up and I see something very large, like, you know, one to two, maybe two meters long, go into the water just on the other side and like headed straight towards me. <laughs> and I swear to God, it was like a bucket of cold water just hit me in the face. And I just froze. I froze. So I remember I, I took one step back. I, I put my, planted my foot behind me, right, my right foot behind me. And I clenched my fists. And I don't know if you've ever heard, you know, the reptilian part of your brain. You know, it's responsible for three things. You know, um, it's the three F's, fight, flight, or the other, the third F, which I won't repeat on your show. <laughs> right. So I, squid, I um, clenched my fists, looked at it, and turned around and ran like a little girl in the opposite direction as fast as I could and got my hell out of there. And I probably like screamed and it was totally embarrassing. There was nobody <laughs> around. But yeah, the, the time I almost got eaten by, eaten by a crocodile because of my own <laughs> stupidity. That was, uh, that was fun. Any run-ins with, uh, say, cops or uh, any thievery? Anybody steal your stuff anytime? Nothing. 20 years. 21 years. Never a problem. Never was robbed. No violent crime. No bribes? Nothing. Not one bribe? Nothing. Wow. Nothing. 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 All right. Any, I mean, I've been to Zimbabwe. I've drove across Africa. Um, like I said, El Salvador. I was in Colombia. When I was in Colombia back in like, 2002, there were car bombings just down the street, which was quite scary. Um, like, I remember getting woken up in the middle of the night from car bombings. Um, that was pretty terrifying. But I mean, you just saw the after effects the next day, police everywhere. But I never had any problem with the police. Um, never got mugged, never got stood up, anything. And side note, Colombia is a beautiful country now. I highly recommend anyone checking out Colombia. The nicest people in the whole wide world. So, so beautiful, amazing, wonderful, wonderful place. I was just in Medellin uh, in January, my last trip out of the country. That was the last I flight I took back uh, January 25th. I got home. But that was my first time there. I loved it. I yeah. loved it. It was great. Um, so any uh, health problems? You ever had to go to a hospital overseas? Any uh, food poisoning? Anything like that? Yeah, I had my run-in with food poisoning many a times. I mean, <laughs> I was in North, uh, North Africa uh, for a while, so I got sick a few times then. Uh, Central America, definitely. 
Australia, Singapore. So in first world countries as well, I got sick. Australia too, really? Yeah, wow. I remember from pizza. I mean, I don't know what this guy did. He must have literally taken my pizza out of the oven, put it on a chopping block he was cutting raw chicken with or something like that. <laughs> Chopped up my pizza and then served it to me. Like that's just pure ignorance. But oh my God, I was sick. So, so sick. Um, so you're yeah, in Panama. That's about it. So you're in Panama now. And I remember when I went to Panama, it was, uh, yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, so many expats in Panama, not just from North America, but from all over like uh, South America. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of a hub mm-hmm. to, and it was growing. Panama City was really growing. And this was oh, probably absolutely. maybe five years ago. Is it still that, that kind of growth? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say there's still very strong expat communities here. You have to understand that the visa process for Panama is probably one of the easiest visas in the world. It's an economic visa. You get it by opening a company here. Now, whether you do anything with that company registration is up to you. I mean, you don't actually have to do anything with it, but it's an economic tie. You also have to get a bank account here, which, you know, their banks are quite stable and quite good. It's a huge financial sector here. They've got the Panama Canal, so there's lots of money that comes in with that. And add to it, I mean, it's a beautiful country. The weather is amazing. There's organic fruits and vegetables everywhere. I mean, fresh fish. Like, really, everything you could ask for is in this country. Low, low cost of living, high standard of living, high medical. Um, like, we have a John Hopkins hospital walking distance to my house. It's, it's a nice place. We like it. And baseball. And they Do love they? their baseball. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the National Stadium down there was named after one of my favorite players growing up in the 70s. Well, uh, Rod Carew. Rod Carew. That and the boxing. was the uh, Roberto Duran, the boxer. Mm-hmm. They have a big statue of him in Panama City with his fist of, uh, of iron. What is it? Manos de... I don't know what iron is in Spanish. I can't remember. Oh, oh God. My Spanish is terrible. Um, <laughs> So, uh, but I did notice there was a difference. There is a, like Costa Rica was the big expat place for a while and it still is for Americans. What is the main difference in Costa Rica and Panama in terms of expat living? I think that in Costa Rica, you're going to find a lot of the retirees there. I mean, that's really how they've painted themselves is retirees and a lot of the, the nature and the um, eco-friendly villages and things like this, which is awesome. I mean, I've been to Costa Rica. It's stunning, beautiful place. Uh, Panama, you're going to find more cosmopolitan. You're going to find really high-end restaurants and bars and fancy things. So my wife and I, we like cities. We enjoy that type of lifestyle. Like, yes, I love nature. I love hiking and getting outdoors and things. But we wanted to be somewhere very convenient. Like we've got an Asian grocery store, literally 10 seconds from our house. So my wife can go buy all her Asian ingredients. There's a Chinatown here. Um, You know, there's three cinemas that are walking distance that all have VIP sitting. And, you know, for 10 bucks, you can get this huge chair. They bring you a blanket. You push a little button. They deliver you a beer. Like, (laughs) I mean, I like that kind of stuff. I won't lie. Like, I, I like it. And you can fly from there and travel from there to just about Absolutely. anywhere in South it's, and Central it's America. It's the hub. Yeah, yeah it's the yeah. hub of, the, of Latin America. So in that regard, it works as well. I have never been to mainland China. I've been to Hong Kong and, and Taiwan mm-hmm. a couple times each and Singapore. I've been all around it, but I just haven't been to mainland China. Um, go. For someone that you've been, obviously, where would you recommend other outside like the main 
touristy places like Beijing and Shanghai, where would you really say that's? Well, Shenzhen and Guangzhou are quite interesting. I mean, that's those are mega cities. If you want to see what the future looks like, go there. I mean, they have everything so figured out; it's unbelievable.、Um, everything is like. Perfect runs perfectly. It's so pretty and nice. You have every option in the world. The cost of living still quite low, although rent is is out of control. There's no question about that. But food and everything.、Um, Xi'an is really beautiful as well. If you've ever seen the pictures of the terracotta warriors, that's where all that's kept. And they have this huge walled city. It used to be the capital of China. So you know, if you go back hundreds of years, so that's really interesting.、Um, Yeah, I mean, I love China. I've been, I want to say, maybe twenty times, maybe more.、Um, I would live there if it wasn't for the Great Firewall, where they don't allow internet access, and I have an online business. But、um, you know, I don't agree with the government and what a lot of the government does there. But I mean, I love the people. I love the language. I adore the food.、Um, we would love to be close to my wife's family again. But when we lived in the Middle East, it was a six-hour, seven-hour flight to Chengdu, and then we'd go and see her family. So you know, we'd go for a weekend, we'd go for a week, and it was easy peasy. Talk about living in、uh, Abu Dhabi. That's a place that I've never been, other than passing through the airport, and I never count that <laughs> in travels. And people say you've been to a country. It's like no, the airport doesn't count. But I do remember the airports there. Just like everything was so big and so flashy. And it looked like it was built yesterday.、Um, pretty is, good description. <laughs>、yeah. I mean, like it's it's pretty fair.、Um, <laughs> right. A lot of money there. A lot of money、oh, going big around. Big time, big time. Especially in Abu Dhabi. I mean, Dubai is really the flashy place. But if you want to look where the money is, it's it's in Abu Dhabi. They have something like six hundred billion dollars in oil reserves in the ground. It's all owned by the national by the the royal family there by the Al Nayans.、Um, so I mean. The local population share in a lot of the wealth, and the local population is only ten percent of the population there. So you have ninety percent who are expats. I I like expat living. I like expat communities. I like that my friends are from all over the world. So, you know, that was true in Singapore. That's true in the UAE, and it's certainly true here in Panama.、Uh, I had a great life when I lived in Abu Dhabi. I really just I can't say enough nice things about the country.、Um, safe, secure, clean. Beautiful,、um, interesting people from all over the planet. I highly, highly, highly recommend people check it out. I really like it there. But are the bulk of those expat workers more or less the like a lot of the workers who do like the construction, the you know servants and all that? You know. Yeah. So you'll have a lot of the construction workers, which will be from Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and, Pakistan, yeah, Indian. Yeah. Not so much the Indians. The Indians will be often the foremans and things like that. A lot of the、oh, yeah. Indians will do slightly higher skilled work.、Um, you'll find that the Filipinos run all of the retail businesses. They'll also always be the cashiers in the grocery stores. The guys who stock the shelves and do the butchers and stuff—they're usually from India.、Um, your delivery drivers—they'll also be from India.、Um, but I mean, you'll also find tons of Indians who own businesses there. If you look at the Top richest people in the UAE. I think you find probably about at least half of them are from India and half are from other Middle Eastern countries. So I mean, there's a lot of money. The Indians have a lot of money there. They have a lot of sway in the country. They have a lot of influence. You're as likely to to hear Hindi on the street. <laughs> 
you're uh, likely to hear any type of uh, Hindi or uh, Tagalog or Filipino or other types of languages as you will English or Arabic or anything like that. I mean, I lived there for eight years. I didn't learn any Arabic. We didn't need to. I mean, you just don't speak to anybody in Arabic. Everybody speaks English. So, And the signs are in both? Uh, they put it in English as well? Is, yeah. I'd say first it's an English country. Second, it's an Arabic country. But it's Arabic in name. I mean, it's really Filipino and Hindi. Right. Well, what about buying property in terms of all these places where you, you live? And I know like so many people now, I have friends who have bought property in Mexico. But I know that buying property in Mexico is different than, say, and all the Costa Rican realtors will tell you, oh, no, this isn't Mexico. Uh, you know, the government can't just take your house or whatever, something like that. What do you find is Panama? What's the deal in Panama in terms of, of buying property? Panama is quite straightforward. And first of all, you're right about Mexico. Mexico has a little bit more steps to it, but it's still doable. I mean, basically, you get a special permission and uh, have to have a special license for buying houses. You do, you do it under a license, you could say. Um, Costa Rica, I think, is pretty straightforward for buying property. I mean, that also qualifies you for a lot of their visas there, for the retirement visa, or if you want to migrate there, that's usually done through a real estate deal. Panama, I mean, there's no restrictions. You don't even need to have a residency to buy a property here. It is. You don't even need to visit the country to buy a property here. You can just hire a lawyer or an agent, do everything remote if you wanted to. Not that I suggest that or um, think that that's a good idea, but I mean, it's very simple. The UAE where I live, there's certain areas where you can buy properties. So there was a lot of areas in Abu Dhabi where you could buy apartments, but very few areas where you could actually buy land. So that made things tricky. Um, we went to buy land and, and funny little side note story. We went to buy a a new build. It was a new area that was opening up in, in a, a man-made island that they did. And they sent us the plans for this project. And they were doing like phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, like 2000 houses or something insane like this. And we got the plans like a month in advance and talked about it, thought about it, got our financing in, uh, in order, everything like that. And they said, okay, it's going to be on Tuesday at 9 a.m. They're going to start selling. We're like, okay, great. We're getting there at 8 a.m. So my agent, they picked us up. And I remember we got there and the doors were still closed. So we sat in the car with the air conditioner blowing. My wife was pregnant at the time as well. And they opened the doors. So we were the first people in line. And they gave us a ticket. I swear to God, a ticket for the permission to like the privilege of buying a house. And the ticket read, <laughs> ticket number 0001, okay? So then we sat there and we waited and people filed in afterwards and there was probably about 40 people there. And then they, they, they had this big electronic clock type of thing and it flipped over and it said 0001, go to uh, you know, office number four. I'm making up the number, but you know what I mean. We sat down and we're like, okay, we want to buy uh, condo model number Y. Once again, I can't remember if it was a Y or Z or X <laughs> or what model number it was, but it doesn't matter. And he's like, type, 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 type. Uh, no, I'll sold out. I was like, okay, that's weird. Okay, we'll take model number Z. You know, it's not our ideal win one. You know, the, the windows are facing in the different direction or something like that, but never mind, it's okay. 
type, 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 type. Uh, no, all sold out. I was like, I don't understand. Like, we're ticket number zero, 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 one. Like, I, I just want to buy a house. Like, give me, give me my house. And uh, I was like, that's it. Get your manager. I, I want to know what's going on here. Like, I don't understand. So he sits down and he's like, uh, yeah, the, the shakes, they, they came in last week pre-sale and they bought all the three-bedroom townhouse condos. And oh, no, no, not the shake. Sorry. He tells me straight off the bat, uh, all, we had VIPs who came in last week to buy them. And I was like, VIPs? I mean, like, this is $1.1 million I'm buying this house for. I'm not a VIP. He laughs, laughs at me and he's like, no, 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 VIPs, like shakes and stuff like that. He's like, it's okay. Just buy one of the four bedrooms. We got some of the four bedrooms. He's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm like, well, what's the price tag? He's like, it's uh, 1.4 million. And I was like, I'm like losing my patience at this point. I'm like, who are you just to tell me to spend another 300,000 US dollars and not worry about it? I'm like, I got to figure out new financing. You don't know what I make <laughs> for a living. I mean, this is just ridiculous. So we thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, and ended up standing up and walking away. I mean, I was like pretty heartbroken. We had been at this process for six months looking. And that was one of the types of things that really pissed me off about the UAE because they open up this new area for expats. We were spending, we were planning, Mike, on spending the rest of our lives there. We wanted a house that I could raise my daughter and have a yard so we could go outside. And they come in and they scooped up all of the places that would have appropriately fit, fit us. And it was like, that's just crazy. You would think they would buy the, the most expensive ones. Why would they buy no, the ones? No, they bought lowered- them all and then they're going to rent them all out to the expats. Oh, right. I mean, like they bought like 200 of them or something like that. <laughs> I was God. like, you've got to be joking. joking. <laughs> and and any, any country where you spend a million dollars and they don't count you as a VIP, I mean, that's just, right. that's, well, I don't like that. Well, now, like, especially this year with US and the travel restrictions and everything else, uh, people have been looking into what they call the golden visas. Yep. You know, when you have to, you're basically buying, I guess, describe it to people, you're buying like a green card into the country. In America, you can do it, uh, you know, buying property and things like that or investing. Yeah, they have the EB-5 and the EB-9 and stuff like that. <clears throat> yeah, investing in a business. Have you done any of that or do you, is that something you recommend to people or do you not? So what we do is we help Americans and Canadians specifically, but also English, Australians, I mean, other countries we're happy to help, but our, our main focus is helping Americans and Canadians leave Canada and the U.S. and move overseas. So we do golden visa, for example, in Portugal. Um, it's 500,000 euro investment in property. The nice thing about Portugal is you can buy the real estate anywhere in the country. It's not pre-government approved projects like it is in, say, the Caribbean, which we also help people get citizenship by investment in St. Lucia and Dominica and these types of countries. But there's some cool things in Portugal. I mean, if you buy your property outside of the main uh, cities, so outside of the Algarves, outside of Lisbon, outside of Porto, you can straight off the bat knock 20% off the investment amount. So instead of being 500,000 euros, I mean, you're going to knock 20% off. Then if you do it in an area where it's like considered a heritage home, so I think that the qualification is it has to be at least 30 years old, and you have to commit to restoring this property, you can knock 20% off. So you can do one or the other, but they're actually stackable. 
So you can actually knock 20% and then additional 20% off, which brings the investment down to about 300,000 euros. And so what does that get you? Well, first of all, it gets you a place to live, which is nice. I mean, it's tangible. You can actually touch it. You can you know, shelter yourself at night. So, so we like that. Um, but then it gives you a permanent residency there. Now you can live there full time. You can work there everything like that. And after five years, you can actually apply for citizenship. So you can become a Portuguese citizen. Now there's a language test. You need to spend a certain amount of time there, yada, yada, yada. But it is a possibility. Once you have Portuguese citizenship, you can live and work anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the EU at least. And um, that's high value. I mean, I know lots of people who spend a million dollars, don't get a house for it just to get the citizenship. I mean, up until recently, we were doing Cyprus citizenship by investment. You know, we do Malta, which is a million dollars. Bulgaria, there's lots of these other countries. So we're doing a lot with Portugal right now. I mean, it's a really free country. They've been very open during the quarantines and the lockdowns. Um, low cost of living, especially for Western Europe, high standard of living, favorable love tax it. laws. It's and. It's a beautiful place. So beautiful. Are, there, are there places that you try to steer people away from and go and look, I know you like this place, but there's a lot working against it? No, I try to give people a realistic understanding of what is out there. I've been to most of the countries that we work with. I think, I work, I think I've been to every country that we work with, actually. And um, I try to give a little bit of insight. Um, Everything is always based on what their needs are. Are they just going for pure lifestyle? Are they going for tax reasons? Are they going for ease of business? Do they have business partners? Is it full-time? Is it just part of the time of the year? What are their hobbies? What are their age? Do they need to have wheelchair access? What are the language requirements? I mean, I have a whole criteria of things that we work with people on. So everything is, you know, individually tailor-made. Right. Well, some, I mean, there's, there's, no, no, notorious for like red tape and bureaucracy in terms of like, I know people that have tried to go to Italy and just the weights on things and just, just something that was supposed yep. to take a year stretches into three years. And just, yeah. just because you filled out one piece of paperwork wrong and it got kicked back to for the sure. beginning. That's true. And I think that a lot of times problems like that happen when you're not working with a professional, like, I try to come up with a custom plan for people. I'm more the 40,000 foot type of guy. Now I have local lawyers who do a lot of the immigration work, who take you there, who fill out the forms. I mean, for example, when I moved to Panama, I work in immigration for a living. I didn't do my own Panama visa. I hired a local lawyer, you know? My company had someone, so I worked with them. They did it all for me, you know? Even now today, I help people move to Panama all the time. I help create the plan. I pass it off to the lawyer, they do the legal work, and everybody's happy. I mean, trying to save 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks and do things yourselves, I mean, ends up taking you three times as long and ends up costing you twice as much anyway. So you might as well work with a professional in the first place. Like, that's why they're professionals. That's why they do this for a living. Are you finding that most of the people that seek you out for, for your services and, and your advice are uh, retirees or young people wanting to or a little bit of both? These days, mostly young people. I mean, in the past, yeah, we did a lot with retirees. These days are young professionals, um, 
people who don't like where the country is going or people who have built a business and just said enough is enough. But we're not talking 60 plus. I mean, most of ours are probably between the 35 and 50 range, I would say. Well, also the pandemic is to, as when you know people aren't going to the office, it has taught a lot of people who uh, maybe not realized it before that they don't have to go in the office. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, there's a giant paradigm shift. Instead of people living in the city, like, okay, so let's, take, um, let's take New York, for example, because I mean, it is a good example. Rents are astronomical there. If you don't need to go into the office, then why are you living in New York City? So a lot of people, they'll take one step and they'll move outside of the city. They'll move out to the countryside. Then you'll have other people who will move from one state to another state. So maybe they'll go from New York down to Florida, favorable tax laws. What I'm encouraging people to do is open their eyes to take one further step and maybe go overseas. Now, the first objection that I always get from people is, well, what about the schooling? Well, okay, first of all, there are international schools, there's private schools, there's lots of options. But I mean, there's also homeschooling. People didn't think it would work, but look at what's happening right now. It is working. They're getting more done in less time. There's a lot less stress. Um, there's a lot of advantages to doing online schooling, online program. I just had a guest on my show this week who runs an fully online digital high schools. And they don't have like a set curriculum. They work with the student at their own pace. He was telling me a story about one child who just fell in love with math, did all four years of high school math in one year, and is now going on to study university level mathematics. I mean, that's what they want to do. These programs are more tailor-made to the students. So living overseas, I mean, this is not a hindrance anymore from the education side. And it's certainly not from the work side. As you said, you know, remote work is so popular now. We've been forced to look at what the software and programs and systems and processes to get all these things done. And we figured it out in a really short amount of time. Does that well, make sense? I've also been amazed. I mean, a lot of this wasn't popular or possible before because the, the broadband really wasn't up to snuff in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, connections were bad. Even this Zoom call we're doing, I mean, even a few years ago, I would try doing Skype calls and stuff and dropping out, and it was terrible. But uh, are some countries better for uh, even basic things like broadband and Wi-Fi than others if you're doing an online business? Yeah, I mean, I have a satellite that does line of sight to the Trump Towers here in Panama. Um, it's super stable. It's business level. I have business level internet for my house. Yeah, I, instead of $29 a month, I pay $200 a month, but it never goes down. It's super fast. Usually, my internet is more stable than the people's internet when I interview them and they're in the United States. Oh, yeah. It's super, super stable here. If you go over to Asia, like go to Korea, go to Japan, go to Singapore, check what their internet is like. They put us all to shame. It's like, so crazy, man. I've been, in, <laughs> I've been in like little cafes there and stuff. I'm just going, oh my God. And they're paying like a 10th of sure. the crap I'm paying here for my internet. It's just like, this thing's lightning, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like instant. It's unbelievable. We can't, you can't even fathom how fast it is over there. It's just, it's nuts. And I, I sometimes like, okay, when I lived in the UAE, it's proper first world country, tons of money there. We paid for good internet. My 
best friend who lives in Korea would come over and visit. And he's like, God, your internet's so slow. What's wrong? Is it down? I'm like, what do you mean? This is, yeah. this is like, this is awesome. It's like, no, man, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it gets depressing when I go to those countries and I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is nuts. This is so fast. Um, so you have, a, um, you have your uh, podcast. You have your own podcast. You have um, books, correct? Yep. How many books? So, have you? so I have one book that you can find on Amazon. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas, and Make Giant Piles of Money. <laughs> Super humble title, I know. Yeah. I, I'm a Just, very humble guy. What's it about? Guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we have a bookstore for escape artists, which is the, the blog that I run. Um, we've got probably about 30 special reports on moving overseas or moving your money or banking or company formation, all of those. If you go to escapeartist.store, you can pick them up. Uh, I have a magazine, a paid magazine called Escape Artist Insiders that I created almost a year ago. And it's a, it's a paid publication, but it's very popular. Um, we talk about all these types of things. Helps a lot of people. I'm very proud of it. And yeah, lots of projects on the go. So, so read, write, speak, everything expat, everything offshore all the time. And you had some good uh, speakers on your show that I heard the one guy talking about uh, learning languages and his method for learning languages in memory. Is yep. there a certain technique you use every place you go that helps you that you can recommend? Yeah, so I follow, follow a guy who's actually now become a very dear friend of mine. His name is Ollie Richards. He does a story-based method. Um, he has a ton of products. I mean, if you go to escapeartist.store, you'll see I work with him on a lot of the language programs. He teaches in a really fun and interesting way. It's not about grammar or memorizing words or anything like that. Um, it's quite neat. Uh, I like that. Um, the guest that you were speaking about, his name is Anthony Metever. He's an amazing individual. He works with memory palaces and visualization to, to learn a new language. And I picked up a ton of tips from him. I encourage you guys to go and listen to that episode. It's like a masterclass on brain health and how to use your mind for learning foreign languages. It's just unbelievable. Well, what about, uh, you know, you can't be all business. What about fun? I mean, would you have hobbies? Would you, are you an outdoor person? Do you, you know, Panama, big surfing spot? Do you go, anything like, what do you do? So, I mean, I'm a workaholic. There's, oh, there's no question about fun. that. <laughs> well, it is when you get to choose what work you do. Well, yeah, of I course. Mean, like, I mean, I genuinely like writing. I like podcasting. I like doing interviews like this. Now, I also... As I said earlier, I actively study Spanish every day. I study for, you know, two hours a day. That is a hobby of mine. Um, I've had lots of hobbies. I'm a master scuba diver and a national lifeguard in Canada. So I love the water. I dove in probably 15 different countries, maybe 120, 140, 150 scuba dives around the world. Yeah, I'm a diver like myself. Uh, so uh, have you been diving down there? Have you gone anywhere? Where are your favorite top spots in... Caribbean and Central America. Because I dove in Ooh. Panama. I think I went, uh, I was on the Pacific side. Well, I also went to Bocas del Toro. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I also did the Pacific as well and saw some whale sharks, which was amazing. Stunning. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So wow. you got uh, any advice? Any top spots? 
Yeah, I dove all through when I hitchhiked through here. So I dove, I got my open water in Belize. I got my advanced in Honduras. I dove in El Salvador in volcanic crater lakes, in freshwater volcanic crater lakes. That was really wild. Wow. You feel these like these jets of hot air, basically steam coming out from the volcano into the water and the bubbles coming up. And if you put your hand right on it, it'll literally burn your hand. It's so hot. Wow. That's wild. Um, dove here in Panama a long time ago, only snorkeled this time around, uh, dove in Colombia, a lot in the South Pacific, um, Tonga. I, I snorkeled, I dove in Tonga, but I also snorkeled with humpback whales. So actually got to go in the water, like right on top of them. That was nuts. Wow. Uh, what else? Uh, I dove the USS president Coolidge, which is this huge, ship carrier that sunk in World War II. I dove that in Vanuatu. I did probably a dozen, maybe two dozen dives on that back in 2007. Um, it's this ship that hit an American landmine coming into port in Vanuatu, and it sunk right off the, the shelf there. And it goes from 33 meters all the way down to 63 meters, and the whole thing is on its side. And you go in through like the cargo hold, and you go through um, path... Uh, which like corridors and elevator shafts, the captain's quarters, the med bay, cargo bays, and there's all the equipment still in there, like cranes and jeeps and all this stuff on their side. It's all from World War II. That is nuts. So I, I love wreck diving. So yeah, I like I've done a couple of good all through ones. Southeast Asia. Um, yeah, I dove in the Philippines and uh, Vietnam yep. and, and Thailand and around there. But I, my, on my list is uh, uh, Palau, which I haven't yep. done. And Vanuatu, I haven't done. And I also, uh, where, where was the other? Oh, the Red Sea. I only did Israel. Okay. But uh, I want to go down into like Sharm el-Sheikh and, and, you know. It's supposed to be beautiful there. I haven't yeah. dove that part of the world. I mean, I lived in the Middle East for eight years. I never got to dove, dive the Middle East, unfortunately. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I got because my- Because in Abu Dhabi, uh, they didn't have. I mean, it was like yeah, a yeah. half day's drive. And then, I mean, I don't know. I got my advanced open water and- uh, in Roatan. Is, yep. is that where you same went? Same with me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Famous, man. It's super, Probably went super to the same famous. place. Yeah, Hopefully. Yeah. I did um, my open water in Malaysia. No, I did my, uh, my rescue in Malaysia and my master's in the Philippines. Okay. Um, Philippines was phenomenal. We dove with thresher sharks there, which kind of look like a great white, but the tail is like really, really long and like a meter, a meter long. Um, that was neat. Very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, outside of uh, Cebu. I was in Dumaguete. Okay, I was outside of Cebu. I was in Malapascua, another island off of Cebu. Lots in common. Yeah, so what's your, uh, you got any trips planned? I mean, things are kind of shut down a lot places now, but I mean, you got any bucket list left? I mean, for someone who's uh, traveled so much, is is some place you're dying to see that you've never been? So it's interesting. When I started traveling as a teenager, I started telling everybody, okay, my goal is to go to every country in the world. When I was like 16 or 17, they kind of all laughed at me. They thought, this is crazy. Now at more than 100 countries, I mean, I think most people believe I can actually do it now. Um, yeah, but I do you want to? Yeah, I still do. <laughs> okay. I still do, Mike. Like, I still it's a really, lot. really want It is. It's tiring, though. It's so tiring. I mean, but 20 years straight. But then, what's happened to me is I go to the same countries over and over again. So like I said, I've been to China 20 times. I've been to Korea about 50 times. I used to do business there. My best friend lives there. My, the godfather to my daughter 
he's, he lives there. I mean, we used to go back and forth, back and forth. My wife speaks Korean. Um, I've been to Switzerland two dozen times. I've been to Germany two dozen times. I mean, over and over and over. I've been to Fiji five, six times, uh, Morocco 10 times. I mean, I find places I like, I go back, I do a lot of business overseas. So I tie them together. At this point, I kind of told my wife, like anywhere you want to go in the world that I haven't already yet been to, I mean, the answer is yes. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm I'm really keen to do a lot more in Eastern Europe, um, Estonia, Georgia. Those look pretty interesting places. I like the way that they're heading. I like what they're doing for entrepreneurs. I like how they're opening up. I like the, the lack of lockdown from this COVID, the amount of freedom that people have there, I think is quite good. So digital nomad visas, who has started those and where do so you see? Estonia has one, Georgia has one, some of the Caribbean countries have one, even Thailand's launching another digital nomad visa. What do you so have to show to get encourage. one? It's usually some form of income from your business. It's not usually very much like $3,000 or something like that. Um, you get to work in the country legally for one year. You have to have an online business. So it's not about, you know, coming in and bartending in the country or something like that, basically taking away a job from a local person, but it does allow for that longer term stay. I think that is a step in the right direction. I I like those types of things. Now they have different degrees of success. I mean, Estonia, if you end up spending more than 183 days there, you have to pay taxes there. They have a flat tax rate of 20%. So depending on how successful your business is, that can make it a really expensive visa. The visa itself is like 48 euros or 55 <laughs> euros. I can't remember what it is. But if you're making, if you have a million dollar business and you're paying 20%, well, suddenly that's the most expensive visa on the planet to go stay for one year. So you're much better off you know, buying that house in Portugal, like we said. You have the house and they have favorable tax laws. Like, I mean... There's other options there. But if it's a brand new business and you know, you're just starting out and you want to see what it's like, I mean, yeah, man, try it out. So by Portugal, I mean, can that house be financed? Or do you have to like no, it's buy usually it by liquid. It. Yeah, no, okay. it's usually liquid <laughs> cash. Yeah. You can't go in and get a a five percent down. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interest <Shoot>. only. <laughs> yeah. Ah, darn. Um yeah, we'll put it on the credit card. Exactly. Well, I know you got a lot of stuff to do and I, wanna, I don't want to keep you too long, but I'll ask what I always ask all my guests on there. What do you think all this travel and experience around the world, what has it taught you about people and how has it changed you as a person and how you look at the world? Well, travel shaped who I am, Mike. I mean, I started as a teenager, so it's impossible to imagine what my life would be like without travel. But I'll tell you when, one insight that I have learned from all of this travel. And that is this, people are the same. Like hands down, it doesn't matter where you are from. Everybody wants the same few things. And I don't care if you're from North Korea or Iran, which by the way, I've been to both of them, um, or you're from Western Europe or North America, everybody wants the same thing. They want a roof over their head, They want a full belly, they want to protect their family, and they want to be loved. I mean, we are all the same. There's no question about it. Um, Yes, there's messed up governments, and governments do some really weird and wacky things, and I I stand against a a lot of the injustice that happens. But the everyday people on the street, 
I mean, we're all the same. Like, I mean, I had nice, normal conversations with people who lived in North Korea. We went bowling in North Korea and I went out drinking and I went to the circus. I mean, like, you had to save, you were sitting on North Korea this whole time. You had to save that story to the end. What, <laughs> how did you get to North Korea? When did that happen? I think in, uh, must've been 2013. I went to North Korea. I went for almost two weeks. We flew into Beijing and then Beijing to Pyongyang. Did you go uh, we there were, saying you were doing business or just as a no, tourist? I went, I went as a tourist. I went as a tourist. I didn't know you uh, could do that. France. Yep. Can if you go through a Chinese company, you can. Oh, um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was a small tour group, like eight people or something like that. We went on National Day. We got to see all the mass dance, like fifty thousand people performing a dance, all in the center square together. Um, yeah, like I said, we did some pretty normal things. We saw some pretty wacky things for sure. There's no question about that. But um, give me one wacky. Give me one wacky thing you saw. Okay, so <laughs> I remember when we went in to go see the memorial for the great leader, quote unquote, the great sure. leader. And you all have to line up and you basically go in one at a time. And it's this massive room. I mean, it must be a thousand, two thousand square foot giant room with 50 foot ceilings, 100 foot ceilings and these red lights. And the only thing that's there is his coffin, I guess. I mean in the center of this room and you go up and you have to bow and then you go to the other side and then you bow and you, you basically have to go around to northeast, west, south and bow each time and then you leave and you can't speak, you can't take any pictures, there's no walking around. I mean, everyone's single file and like he's there, like preserved. I, I went mean, to Ho Chi Minh's uh, grave like uh, in uh, Vietnam. Yeah. It's kind of very similar to that. Just silent single file yeah. you walk in wow yeah, yeah it's just it's really I mean, bizarre north korea is just uh, just a fascinating it's it's just so uh, so much mystery around it cuz nobody so few people have been did you have to stay in that group like you had to be guided and everything else yes and no so i mean we had one hotel we could stay in and every morning they picked us up in a bus and then we would go and do the activity but once we would go for an activity I mean, it wasn't like we had to stay in that little group. Like I remember, for example, on that day for National Day for the Mass Dance, our tour guide said, okay, you can go uh, two blocks that way and three blocks to the right and one block behind us. But just kind of stay in this general area and go and talk to whoever you want. So this was amazing. We had a Brazilian guy who was in our group who had lived in Seoul for like 10 years and spoke fluent Korean. So we just like ran around and talked to all the people. And I mean, we sat down and had picnic with them and shot the shit and talked about normal things. And, you know, we met people who had studied overseas and, you know, our tour guide had uh, lived in Thailand, went to university in Thailand. So she had seen the outside world. So that was pretty cool. You got a little bit of opinion. Okay. Yeah, they're probably, well, definitely, they're not going to talk bad about the government to a foreigner. But I mean, they did talk about their family. They talked about what their life was like. We'd asked about the food and the culture and the history. And I mean, yeah, it was interesting. It was really interesting to see. Did they ask you anything? I mean, I think like, that they mostly wanted to ask like why we were there and, <laughs> right. you know, what were you doing here and stuff like that. Because um, you must have stood out. 
Yeah, there's no doubt about I mean, that. <laughs> people must have been pointing and like, hey, look at them over there. What the? Yeah, I remember we had an Australian guy in our group who must have been about 6'2 or 6'3. Oh, like he a just giant. Like towered over people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm six feet and I'm just walking around Vietnam. I felt like, you know, King Kong. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm just, I'm huge. I'm huge. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, oh man, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. And once my again, if, if you can give your, um, this is get your plugs in, get your websites out. Where can people follow you on Instagram and uh, all the other sites? Yeah, absolutely. So best bet is to go to expatmoneyshow.com. You can subscribe to the podcast, The Expat Money Show. Um, you'll find us on every pa- popular platform. So Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, iTunes, yada, yada, yada. Um, for social media, I'm pretty active on Twitter. If you search Thorup Mikkel, T-H-O-R-U-P-M-I-K-K-E-L. You'll find me there. Otherwise, check out my work at Escape Artist. We've got a free blog. We've got the magazine, um, everything like that. Happy to try to answer any questions and help people. I got about 10 people who work for me. So, you know, we're pretty good about getting back to people in a pretty timely fashion, I would say. But yeah. All right, man. Well, I'll, I'll keep you in mind when I make my great escape. Here I appreciate help. it. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Mikhail Thorpe, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks.